It's Wednesday, December 25th. Merry Christmas. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Every year, millions of Americans head to Christmas tree lots to pick out that perfect tree. But have you ever stopped and wondered how that tree got there? Of course not. What you may not know is that researchers are working to bring you better trees every year and avoid the dreaded coning. Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer at Wired, joins us for the science of growing the perfect tree. Next, collectible toy values are on the rise. Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the rising collectible market and the 20-year rule. That means start looking for your Power Rangers and Harry Potter toys. We will also tell you what the holy grail of toys is so you can start looking. Finally, the FDA has named 16 brands of dog food that have been linked to canine heart disease. The FDA isn't suggesting that pet owners stop feeding their dogs these brands just yet, but some vets are advising against grain-free foods. Rachel Feltman, science editor at Popular Science, joins us for what pet owners should know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And the idea is, if you find trees that can resist colder temperatures, then the farmers who grow these trees in large numbers can produce better yields, better looking trees, and get you a better looking tree every year. Joining us now is Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer for Wired. We're going to be talking about Christmas trees. It's so amazing how much science actually goes into getting the perfect Christmas tree. When we go to a Christmas tree lot, you know, we're not thinking of anything of that sort. We're looking, hey, it's got to have the right shape. It's got to have the right color. Is it going to fit in through my doorway and whatnot? But there's so much that goes behind it. And you wrote a great article for Wired about the science that goes behind it. Tell us a little bit about all this stuff and how researchers are working to get us the perfect Christmas trees. It's interesting. A lot of the things that people pay attention to when they go to pick up trees, they are actually the same kinds of things that scientists think about when they are trying to decide the best ways to raise trees in large numbers on Christmas tree farms and also to breed them, so looking at the genetics of those trees. And there are things like, as you said, the color of the tree, there's something called needle retention, which is literally how many needles stay on the tree as opposed to how many of them wind up covering the gifts underneath. There's things like the color, and then of course the overall health of the tree. These are all things that some scientists can actually test for. I spoke with one researcher his name is Bert Craig, and he's a forest scientist at Michigan State University, and he does work on something called cold hardiness. Basically, how resistant are trees to really, really cold temperatures, the kind of thing that can cause them to become less healthy or even die over the course of eight, nine, ten seasons, which is the typical age of a Christmas tree. And that experiment actually involves plucking little sprigs from experimental trees and sticking them in a freezer and slowly lowering the temperature of that freezer and pulling out sprigs every few degrees Celsius, and then seeing at which point they start to turn color. And the idea is, if you find trees that can resist colder temperatures, then the farmers who grow these trees in large numbers can produce better yields, better looking trees, and get you a better looking tree every year. It takes about 10 years for a tree to fully mature that you can take to a lot so you can buy and put it in your, in your home. And these trees are growing about one foot per year, and obviously going through the seasons, going through the cold climate and they need these resilient trees to be able to last that long. If they're not making it that long, then they're just useless and you're wasting time and resources. Another one that they uh, really focus on too is uh, how you fertilize these things. And it was uh, interesting that you noted in the article that old farmers used to over-fertilize these things and it have a, a number of different effects where it would affect the groundwater and whatnot. And through these kind of analysis, we're able to figure out you know, you don't need to fertilize them that much, fertilize each tree, 
and you save time money and uh, don't affect the groundwater that way. Talk to us about coning. This, and this involves pine cones growing on the tree, which in Christmas trees is a bad thing. You don't want pine cones on this tree. So talk to us about the process with that. Coning is literally just like it sounds, the appearance of pine cones on a tree. Now, in nature, fir trees, for example, they typically start showing cones after they hit about 15 years old. But on farms, and what's interesting is researchers aren't even really sure why this happens, but in farming scenarios, fir trees will sprout cones much, much earlier than that, after maybe three or four years. The thing is, these cones do not what's called persist. Every season, they sprout, they mature for a little bit, and then they dry out and they shatter and they get all over the tree. And that doesn't look good. If you get a tree with lots of cones on it, people don't buy it. It's a wasted tree from an economic standpoint, from a tree farmer's standpoint. That's a tree they can't use. So coning is a problem. A bigger problem is how you address it. So a typical fir tree can sprout hundreds of cones every year. A big one might sprout a thousand. If you're looking at fir trees and something like 90% of fir trees grown commercially in the U.S. experience coning, that's millions of trees sprouting hundreds to thousands of cones apiece. You're looking at potentially billions of cones that need to be plucked by hand every year. That's a huge time cost, right? right? That's a huge expense for these farmers. That's so crazy. I don't think anybody really realizes that that's part of what goes into growing these trees and, and making sure they're ready for that Christmas tree lot. That is so much work. It's so much work without anything. It's just, it's incredible. Finally, just to move on real quick, talk to us about this other thing called the Collaborative for Germplasm Evaluation Project. And this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all about getting new trees so that they don't get affected by something called root rot. We've been talking a lot so far about what are called culture techniques. Basically, how can you adjust your farming practices to improve the output of your tree? One thing we haven't talked about yet is the genetic side of things. And on the genetics front, one of the most ambitious projects related to Christmas trees is this project called COFERGE, and that's short for Collaborative Fur Germplasm Evaluation Project. And that is this multi-institutional nationwide effort to identify, among other things, new species of fir tree for the Christmas tree market. Between 30 and 40 species of fir trees around the world. The exact number depends on who you ask, and I won't get into that. But only a small handful of those are currently grown for the North American Christmas tree market. And two of the most popular trees are particularly susceptible to this thing called root rot. It's caused by a water mold and a tree that comes down with it can die in a matter of days. So it's a big problem in America's biggest tree-growing states. But in Turkey, there are fir trees that are resistant to root rot. So right now, one of the goals of the Coferge project is to grow Turkish fir trees in Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Washington, I think Oregon's in there. I'm probably missing a couple. But one of the goals of the project is to see how adaptable these trees are in different U.S. climates. And the goal is to find, you know, if this tree can be resistant to root rot and it can survive in North American climates, maybe we could have a new kind of Christmas tree. Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You rip it open to play with the toy. And so the box is actually as rare or more rare than a lot of the rare toys because... They just get discarded. And 20 years later, you know, you have a toy, but you don't have a box. Joining us now is Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for the Wall Street Journal. Collectible toys. Values are on the rise for these things. It's not just Star Wars. It's a lot of other stuff. Let's start from the top. What makes a toy collectible 
and tell us about the 20-year rule. The 20-year rule is actually something I also uh, learned about when I was reporting this. It makes sense in that when you were a kid, you play with a toy, you love that toy, you eventually forget about that toy. 20 years later, you have money, you have maybe a job, a relationship, everything else you want in life, but you've forgotten about that toy. And so people oftentimes are oddly buying their childhood back by going back and trying to remember all the things they had. You know, when you're a kid, obviously, like you said, you, you know, you beg your parents and it's a waste of money at some point. And now that we're older, we can buy these things for ourselves. We want to collect them. We want to have fun with them. But what's the market like? The market is kind of what you make of it. It's really difficult to make money buying and trading toys unless you make it a full-time job. It's kind of like everything. A lot of times, the better thing is just to kind of choose what you like. If you're a He-Man guy, if you're a Batman guy, if you're a Superman guy, just buy the things that you like and kind of surround yourself with the with the things you enjoy. And occasionally, if other people like them, they'll rise in value as well, and, and you can trade them off and sell them however you want at that point. But, you know, a lot of the guys I talked to, it was all about the collection. It wasn't really about the money. Even the guys who owned comic stores and did actually make a living off of this, a lot of the times it was kind of secondary to the fact that they just had all these things that they like surrounding themselves with. We always hear phrases like mint condition in the box. Why is the box such an important thing with collectibles? The fact that the box kind of guarantees the condition of the toy is obviously important. But what was really interesting that I came across when I was reporting this out was that James Gallo, who's the owner of Toy and Comic Heaven in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, who's also an avid collector himself, had kind of explained that the box is the thing that gets thrown away. You rip it open to play with the toy. And so the box is actually as rare or more rare than a lot of the rare toys because they just get discarded. And 20 years later, you know, you have a toy, but you don't have a box. There is as much or more nostalgia tied to the box. You know, it's about Christmas morning. You maybe didn't get that thing you want. And all of a sudden your parents are like, oh, what is this surprise gift we found behind the sofa? And they bring it out and you shred it open. And the first thing you see is that Optimus Prime or whatever it is staring back at you through the plastic. And that becomes a very important moment sometimes much more so even than actually bashing the toys together. What are the things that are getting hot and increasing in value? One of the toys that's that's heating up right now that was really interesting to me was these vintage Star Wars figures from the Droids animated series. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. I certainly wasn't. And I'm a Star Wars nerd myself. But it was a 1985 animated series starring R2-D2 and C-3PO together on their own adventures. Um, it lasted... <laughs> oh, so that sounds very exciting, actually. It was very w- weird uh, at best. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. It only lasted 13 episodes. I can't imagine why. And so the toys from that series have kind of just sprung up oddly again recently as something that people are kind of chasing, partially because they're so rare and obscure, but also just because they're unique, they're interesting, and they're just kind of this untapped part of the Star Wars universe. Um, You know, other things, Power Rangers are huge right now because we've hit that 20, 25-year mark. I had all the Power Rangers. Oh, man, I I had a ton of these things, (laughs) but I have no more boxes. I probably have like an old crate full of Power Rangers toys that are not well kept. So they're not worth anything, but I had the same thing. I had a ton of these things. Yeah. That was the one that stuck out to me the most. It's like, man, that that could have been something. My little pony bronies and everybody else are are bringing those back. Harry, Harry Potter was an interesting one. 
Yeah, Harry Potter is interesting because that's another one that's hitting that 20-year point. There are a lot of toys, and, and I, you know, I'm not a Harry Potter person. I, I never really read the books. Um, I was never really a fan of the movies. But people who like the toys and who played with them as kids are reaching that age. Sorry to, to kind of diverge, but another part about this is the relevance. Harry Potter has been relevant for 20 years. Right, right. It's not just that it existed and then it came back. Harry Potter has, you know, we've had our movies, we've had our books, we've had our toys, we've had a spin-off series at this point. And so that that amount of relevance really matters to the toy being important as well because it's not only rising and falling in value, it is just consistently going up because the toy and the, and the property, the IP never goes away. What are ones that we should not waste our time on? You know, the Funko Pops, the Funko Pops are really losing value for a couple of reasons. One is just that there's no play value there. You just kind of put them on a shelf and you stare at them and you're like, well, those are nice. Right. And then you walk away. Uh, the other part is that there's just too many of them. Yeah. They're, they're making them for every single genre and movie and everything. There's this weird balance with collecting. When there's too many of something, you just can't collect them all. So you feel defeated. And when there's too few of something, you can't collect anything. So you feel defeated. And so there really is kind of an interesting groove that these toy lines have to hit to kind of catch that wave and really blow up. Last question I have for you. What is the holy grail of collectible toys? And it was funny because uh, reading your article, it's a death trap is really the most highly sought after thing. Yeah, the the kind of holy grail, the white whale, kind of whatever you want to call it, is this Boba Fett toy that came with this rocket firing backpack. And apparently because it was a choking hazard, it never got released. Yet somehow these prototypes kind of fell out into the world and, and these people pick them up and, you know, they trade at astronomical rates. The last one that went on sale, I believe it was in March, sold for more than $86,000. The fact that it's Star Wars obviously really elevates it. The fact that it's Boba Fett, I think, elevates it. And the fact that it is just this incredibly rare and obscure really sends it out of the stratosphere. Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. They were seeing higher rate of this particular kind of heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy, and they were seeing it in breeds that they didn't usually see it in. Joining us now is Rachel Feltman, science editor at Popular Science. The FDA recently made a pretty scary announcement for pet owners. They said that grain-free food might be linked to a dangerous heart condition in dogs. Increasingly, a lot of dog foods have been going this way. Dog food manufacturers have been trying to give more healthy options, things like that. The FDA is just warning pet owners about this. They've even gone as far as to name 16 brands of dog food that might be associated with this heightened heart risk. And some of them are very popular brands. Blue Buffalo is in there. Nutro, the Rachel Ray's Nutrish is on there. These are all ones that get a lot of advertising. Let's start at the beginning. What kind of foods are they talking about when they say grain-free dog food? What is that? When we talk about grains in pet food, they've gotten a reputation for being filler and, and being something that our pets don't need or that can even make them and it's true that some brands use so-called greens like potatoes, where those really are just useless filler. But the thing is that there are certain nutrients that dogs need that they can get from healthy grains. A lot of the times that is what is present in these kind of traditional 
dog food. What the FDA is focused on are any kind of like boutique dog food, which is kind of a funny phrase to use, but anything that's from outside of these major longstanding manufacturers. They're looking at things that are grain-free, freshly prepared dog food. You know, we're starting to see startups where people can get dog food in the mail. Really anything that is new and comes from a small company is what the FDA is is talking about here. Some of these foods are based with peas and lentils, as you said, potatoes. And the term that vets use for it is boutique exotic ingredient and grain free. So BEG. And as you were saying, you know, dogs need a certain amount of nutrition. There's very few dogs out there that have grain allergies Gluten intolerance is really rare in dogs. There's only like one family of inbred Irish setters that is confirmed to have some of this stuff. So there is nothing to suggest that dogs can't have foods with traditional grains. So these are things that are small manufacturers, these boutique style foods. So the FDA hasn't said that you shouldn't stop feeding your dogs this just yet. But what's the correlation? How did this come to be? Why are they investigating these types of foods? It started with some anecdotal gathering of data from veterinarians who noticed and reported that they were seeing higher rate of this particular kind of heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy. And they were seeing it in breeds that they didn't usually see it in. In purebreds, like in certain breeds like Great Danes and Doberman Pinschers, they have genetic links, you know, as many pure breeds have genetic links to some condition or other. But that around the country, at least a few of them started noticing that bulldogs and labs were coming in with these heart problems. And they also noticed that a lot of those patients were on grain-free diets, which is why the FDA started investigating about a year ago. Now, the thing is, for now, it's just a correlation. We see a rise in grain-free food, and we see a rise in these heart problems in dogs that didn't used to have them. But it could just be that grain-free food is getting more popular while something else is causing these heart conditions to increase. It could be that people who are likely to choose grain-free food for their dogs are likely to choose other kinds of products or lifestyles for their dogs that are having an impact. So for now, there's a connection, but we don't know that it's a cause or even that it's actually contributing to it. But the takeaway is that unless your vet has diagnosed your dog with a gluten intolerance or a wheat sensitivity or allergy, which again is is pretty rare, then there's no reason for you to pick grain-free food and there may even be a risk. What should we be looking at when we buy dog food? There's a few different labels that we should be looking at, AA, FCO compliant, I guess, uh, you know, they do animal feeding tests and they have like a lot of nutritional information on there. We should be looking for certain things like this to help decide which kind of dog food we're getting. A lot of people have started to associate over-processed dog food with being unhealthy. And, you know, it's true. There are probably lots of brands of dog food that are not great for your dog, but these large manufacturers have put in the kind of nutritional testing to know that dogs are receiving the balance of nutrients that they need. And especially if they've received those certifications you mentioned, then pet owners can feel confident that their pets are getting a balanced meal. And the issue with some of these newer brands and and newer options for dog food is just that the ingredients are often things that haven't traditionally been used in dog food. That might sound appealing to consumers because it looks more like the food they eat and that feels like a more luxurious thing to feed their dog. 
but we don't know how well dogs ride eating those things. Rachel Feltman, science editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.